Before I take a seat, um, I'd just like to share a few words with you. And uh, Gary, if you'll come oh. up here as well and join me. So, um, the church and I would like to thank you, Pastor Gary, for your dedication to not only the church, but to each and every one of us. I'll pull this up. To each, to each and every one of us. You've been an excellent teacher and a shepherd to this flock, teaching us how to walk in the way of Jesus. They say, give a man a fish and you feed him for a night, but you teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime, and you've done just that. You've taught us how to feed ourselves through the word of God, to not just rely on you and what you have to say on Sunday mornings. You've taught us to look for ourselves and how to learn and how to walk with Jesus. You've been more than just a pastor. You've been an example of what a man looks like who loves Jesus and his dedication to his church. I've seen you here some Sunday mornings before sunrise setting up for service, and I've seen you tired and still serving many times. I never knew my pastor could be my friend. You love and serve even more than you teach. Jesus taught us that true love is serving. It's washing feet, and you model this well. And we would just like to thank you, Gary. Amen. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And Heather, if you could come up here, too. Oh, there you are. You're right here. <laughs> She's already here. And here is um, a card. Oh, wow. Thank you. And um, would you like to read it aloud? I'll let you. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Thank you. God bless you, Pastor. The Lord has called and gifted you to the Lord has called and gifted you to bless you and make you a blessing. As you rest in Him, He will work. As you trust in His ways, He will accomplish His purposes. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. 2 Corinthians 9.8 May you sense God's pleasure in your faithful serving and know that you are very much appreciated for all that you do. Your Revolution family. Amen. Well, thank you very much. That's awesome. That's so and here's cool. a check for $2,000 to show our appreciation. Holy. Wow. Thank you, Gary. Thank you very much. I appreciate that very much. I love you all so much. You guys are so good to us. In addition to showing our appreciation to Gary, we'd like to also show our appreciation to Tammy. So Tammy, you would come up here. Oh, no, I'm crying. <laughs> um, Tammy, stop. No, I'm going to speak. Okay, our tears say it all, right? Um, Tammy is, works alongside Gary, and she does so much for our church. Um, she... I'm trying. <laughs> I'm going to be up here all day. So, um, but she does so much for our children and our teens, and she helps with... Okay, I can't say it. But we appreciate you very much, Tammy, and the ladies have wanted to present you with some flowers. Thank you. We, we love y'all too very much. Very, very much. much. I appreciate Amen. it. 
Amen. Thank you all very much. That was so thoughtful. I appreciate that. All right. You got flowers in a bag? I got $2,000. Just kidding. Actually, Tammy will tell you this is the truth. Whenever I go preach somewhere else or go do a workshop or preach a revival or something like that and they give me an honorarium, when I come home, the first thing I do is I hand the check to Tammy. I say, do what you want with it. You know, because she, I could not do any of this without her. She's amazing. Of course, you guys know that. So I, I thank God for her. Um, so I will skip the, the, the great video that Matt made. We'll just go straight into the scripture here. So our, our scripture reader this morning is Heather Patterson. And Heather, we're going to finish chapter two and go a little bit into chapter three. Follow along on your device or up on the screen. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of the Abiathar. Sorry, I told you there was no hard words. I guess I lied. (laughs) The high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not allowed, uh, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for a man, not man made for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there. with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomaya, (laughs) and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Amen. Thank you, Heather. This is the word of the Lord. All right. So in your lifetime, we have seen a great scientific breakthrough, and it was the cracking of the code of the human genome. Scientists now know what the code is in your DNA and every strand and how it determines everything. We knew that the DNA determined those things, but we didn't know how. But there is code written into every strand of DNA like a computer programmer sat down and wrote it which tells you that if there's code, there has to be a programmer, right? That this didn't happen by accident or chance. 
The, the genius that broke the human genome code is Dr. Francis Collins. He's one of the most respected scientists in the field of genetic research. Collins, Collins was a self-described obnoxious atheist in his academic days. During this stage in his life, it seemed clear to Collins that science had all the answers. Any questions about life in the universe could ultimately be reduced to physics and chemistry. After college, Collins attended medical school where he confronted, was confronted by a broad spectrum of suffering and disease. To his surprise, one of his patients happily described how her religious beliefs supported her through her suffering and then challenged him on his own beliefs. Forced to examine the evidence concerning the truth of, or falsity of religion, Collins was eventually led to read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, where he says, within the first three pages, I realized that my arguments against faith were those of a schoolboy. He realized that no law of science could adequately explain the existence of morality. In 1990, Francis Collins, the head of the Human Genome Project, stood by Bill Clinton's side as, as the president and announced, today we are learning the language in which God created life. He went from an obnoxious atheist to a believer in Jesus Christ, a born-again Christian, because of science. And yet, what does the world tell you today? Oh, you, faith, you don't need faith, you need science. And let me tell you, if you have faith and you see the science, the two go together clearly. Science will lead you to the creator, not cause you to not believe in him. The smartest men in the world and women in the world are coming to faith in Jesus Christ as they realize evolution is just a farce, that there's no way that all these complicated things in our universe, in our, in our bodies, in, our, in the world around us could have happened by accident. All of it points to a creator. And that's cre that creator's name is the remarkable Jesus Christ. And I challenge you this morning, if you're not really sure where you stand on Christianity, the Bible, and Jesus, just simply read the Gospel of Mark with us. Study it with us. And just be intellectually honest and do your due diligence and study. And at, at the end, if we go through the book of Mark, you decide that you're still an atheist or you're still an agnostic or you're still not sure, great. We can pat you on the back and say, at least you tried. At least you were honest enough to, to do your own research. But let me just prepare you for this. If you truly read the Gospel of Mark with an open mind, and more importantly, an open heart, I guarantee you Jesus Christ will speak to you. If you have an open mind and an open heart, the Scripture will do what the Scripture does because it's not just a book. It is the very words of God. And you'll find that out for yourself. Don't take my word for it. So we're going to cover this passage of Scripture here. And it says, on one Sabbath. Now, Sabbath is, the word Sabbath literally means seventh. Okay, and so they, every seventh day, they rested. Where did they get that pattern? They got it from Genesis, because God created the world, and I believe literally in six days, and on the seventh day he rested, not because he was tired, but to set an example for us of this rhythm of life. There are 365 days in a year, why? Because that's how long, what? It takes the earth to go around the sun and make one revolution. I like that word. But there are approximately 28 to 30 days in a month. We break it up kind of weird, but that's because of the rotation of the moon around the earth, right? There are 24 hours in a day because that's how long it takes the earth to make one revolution, one uh, cycle to spin and turn it away from the sun and back to the sun. And so we see that a day, a month, 
and a year are all based on things in space. But what is a week based on? It has nothing to do with space or the sun or the earth. It, has, it is, all has to do with the, the pattern that God laid down of six days you work and on the seventh day you rest. Now, there are different Christian views about the Sabbath, but we'll talk about those in just a second. So the, to the Jews, the Sabbath became a very holy day. God gave one basic rule about the Sabbath. Don't work. He did not flesh it out in any great detail. He just said, use your common sense and don't work. But what the Pharisees did is they came out with hundreds and hundreds of laws of what work was. For example, you could untie a knot because that was setting something free, but you couldn't make a knot. So if you had shoelaces, you could not tie them. Or if you had anything like that, you could not tie it. And so you could, you could walk by and pick an apple off a tree and eat it, but you couldn't do much more than that or that would be considered harvesting, which was work. And so you couldn't cook. And there's all kinds. And what was actually cooking and what wasn't. And you could, you could walk, but you could only walk so many steps a day or that walking was considered work. And so they came with all these things that God did not come up with. And that's when you get really dangerous. When a church or denomination starts telling you a bunch of things that God didn't say, but saying you need to do these things, you need to be very, very careful. They could be good common sense suggestions Okay, or they could be trying to be controlling, which is what man usually tries to do with religion. So uh, it says right here, it says, look, why, why are they, your disciples, doing that which is not lawful? Wait a minute, whose law are they talking about? God's law? No, they're talking about their own law. And that's what people start doing when they get very religious. They start condescending their views on other people and thinking they're better than them because they've set up their own set of false rules that God didn't even come up with. So let's look at some of these views of, the, of, a, of a Christian views of a Sabbath. And there's four of them, basically. I mean, there's, sure, there's probably more than that. But four, in general, there's four most common ones. One, there are people like the Seventh-day Adventists and people, how many of you know people consider themselves Messianic Christians? You ever heard of those type of people? Okay. Um, uh, and Seventh-day Adventists, and there's even what's called Seventh-day Baptists. There's a lot of different groups like that. There's not too many worldwide, uh, considerably uh, numerically. They're not the majority by any means. But they believe that Saturday is still the day of worship. And they believe in the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, but they still worship the Lord on Saturday. And they still rest. And, they, and of course, the, sa the Sabbath in the Bible starts with Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. So there are some Christians who still keep that. And obviously, Jews still keep that. But we're talking about it in a Christian view. The second view is that the Christian Sabbath is now on Sunday. I personally don't hold to this view. I don't think the Sabbath is moved. The Sabbath is still Saturday. But there's a distinction. What did God say not to do on the Sabbath? Don't work. If you notice in creation, he didn't say worship me on this day. Okay? It just so happened that they started worshiping on that day and there was other reasons to do it on that day. But there is a distinction between taking a day of rest and having a day of worship. And they don't have to be on the same day. And that's exactly what you saw the Jews doing and Paul doing. You saw Paul going into the synagogues on Saturday to preach the gospel, but then celebrating communion with the believers on Sunday. And so you, you don't... There's some people who think, oh, God moved the Sabbath to Sunday. I, I don't follow that view. There are a lot of people, who do, good people who believe that, but 
Um, but that doesn't mean they're bad people. I just don't agree with that view. So there are some people, not too many, mostly Presbyterians, who believe that the Sabbath is only for Jews and not for Christians. And it was a Jewish thing under Levitical law for the Old Testament and doesn't apply to us today. We don't have to have a Sabbath. That was only a Jewish thing. But the fourth view, the one I hold to, is that Christ is our Sabbath. That he fulfilled the Sabbath. He is our rest. He is everything to us. And so therefore, every day I rest in Christ. I'm no longer working to please God. Christ said it is finished. It's all done. And so, yes, should I take a day of rest and take a day off to relax my family? Yes, we all should. Okay, we live in a workaholic society that is not good for us and not getting us anywhere. But I believe that Sunday is the day to honor the resurrection of Christ. That's the day that they found the empty tomb. And ever since then, believers have been worshiping on the first day of the week, most believers, okay? Now, some people who disagree with this view will say, no, no, the, the first day of the week didn't come until like 300 AD when the Catholic Church made the first day of the week the day of religion, and that was a pagan thing, blah, blah, blah. No, the Catholic Church only put their stamp of approval on something that had already been happening for 300 years, okay? So you saw, believe you can read it over and over and over again in the book of Acts that upon the first day of the week when they met to break bread, and on the first day of the week, let every man lay inside in the store and, and give an offering, and you see all these Christian things happening on the first day of the week, but they're not, they're not saying, but this is our Sabbath and we can't do any work. So feel free to go golfing on Sunday afternoon if you want. Mark, great, amen. Do whatever you want to do. I, I, the, 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 the principle is we need to take time to rest so we don't burn out and we have family time. We also need a day of worship. If you want to read up more about this, here's an excellent book called Perspectives on the Sabbath, Four Views. And it actually has four different God pastors who have four different views on this. And you can read and decide for yourself. It's laid out really well and an excellent resource there. So... In Mark chapter 7, just fast forward a little bit, Jesus scolds religious people. You ever notice that Jesus' biggest enemies were religious people? Okay, and, and I find that today when people are deconstructing their faith, what they're really deconstructing in most cases is a fake form of Christianity. And I'm for that. Yes, I'd, I'd love for you to quit your fake form of Christianity and find true Christianity. But what a lot of people are doing is they're deconstructing a fake form of Christianity and just giving up on Christianity altogether. When really you just need to find the real thing. It'd be kind of like if you were a University of Texas Longhorn fan and you finally got fed up with them losing and you just gave up on sports altogether. No, just discover the Texan A&M Aggies and just move on with your life, okay? So anyway, you notice they won last night, right? Knocked off number one Alabama. Anyway, but people often do this. Like I know of someone who went through a bitter divorce and they just said, I'm never going to get married again. You don't, as grandma said, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because you went through a bad experience doesn't mean you give up on what is ideal. And just because you had a pastor who was a big hypocrite doesn't mean you stop searching for a church that is loving and caring and kind. Now, will you find a perfect church? Absolutely not, okay? But thank God we do have a perfect Savior, amen? So you just keep seeking Jesus and you try to get yourself with a group of people who are seeking Jesus genuinely and passionately and want to do it according to the word of God. Again, they won't be perfect, but you don't throw out the perfect just because you've experienced the wrong. In fact, the wrong way of doing Christianity, the wrong way of do doing religion is proof that there is a right way. How do you know it's wrong? 
How do you know they're hypocrites unless you know what is right? So pursue what is right. He says, in vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now follow me here. They're saying this is what God says when really it's what man says. He says, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And that's what they were doing. God gave the Sabbath as a day of rest, rest and relax. And you know what the Jews were doing? They were all tight. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Hey, stop that. Blah, blah, blah. And everybody's like, man, I can't relax on the Sabbath because the Pharisees are making me feel guilty for everything. And God's like, that's not what I gave it to you for. I gave it to you so you could just chill for a day and just be thankful for creation and just relax with your family. But you guys have worked it into something that it totally is not meant to be. So let me talk to you about some examples of what Jesus was talking about like that would apply here to our 21st century here. Examples of traditions becoming doctrine. You've seen some of these, okay? And I, I could go for a hundred of these. But our, our Church of Christ friends believe there's no instruments in church, okay? They don't believe in an organ, a piano, guitars, drums, especially drums. Drums are of the devil. You don't do any of these things. And you just sing in church and it's just voices. And I was actually meditating on this this morning. I thought, you know what? All these people who have amazing talents to play instruments, they have to say, oh, I can't use this gift to the glory of God. I just, it's when I go to church. I mean, do you think that's really what God wants? That God say, oh man, Rob, you are a great bass player, but don't bring that in God's house. <laughs> the God who gave you the gift to play the bass doesn't want you to play it to his glory. So just go play it in a club somewhere or something like that. How does this make any sense? And they say because instruments aren't found anywhere in the New Testament. Air conditioning's not found anywhere in the New Testament. I guarantee you got your thermostat on. Right? I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. It, it was an overreaction to worldliness a couple hundred years ago, and they made a whole doctrine around it when it has nothing to do with the Bible. I mean, how many instruments do you see in the Old Testament? Man, all over the place. And Jesus didn't say stop. So why do you take that as a stop? Here's another one. Women can't wear pants. You know, you've been around Pentecostal people uh, that don't wear makeup, don't wear earrings. They wear skirts all the time. They have their hair plain and long. They don't cut their hair. And they do all this. And again, they've elevated this to where you're, if you're doing, if you're dressing this way and looking this way, you must be godly. And it's all what? External. And, that's, and it all comes from a misunderstanding of scripture. Um, the same people say women can't wear jewelry. Now, here's where they get it. They get off of one verse and they've totally misunderstood it. Just use your fifth grade mentality and see if you can't figure this out with me, okay? I'm not saying you're on a fifth grade. I'm saying uh, even a fifth grade can understand this. So in the King James Bible, which is where they got this from, it says, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of the plating of hair and the wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. So here's what they say. Oh, don't do these things. Don't plate your hair. Don't wear gold. Well, if you're going to be consistent, don't wear clothes. Isn't that what it would say? If these are don'ts, then let's be consistent. Don't, braid, don't do fancy stuff with your hair. Don't put on jewelry and don't put on clothes. But they're not being consistent with that. He's not saying don't do something fancy with your hair. Don't wear gold and don't put on clothes. Obviously, not saying that. He's saying you, you're... you're Outward appearance isn't what your beauty is about. It's more about your inward appearance. He's not saying if the barn needs paint, don't paint it, okay? He's saying that go ahead and do these things, but don't be all about that thing. Some guarantee you women and men will spend more time 
on the, in the mirror getting ready than they spend more time looking in the heart getting ready. That's what Peter's saying. In fact, if you read a better translation, the ESV here, here says, do not let your adorning be external. But the braiding, the, the braiding of hair, in other words, here's externals, the braiding of hair, putting on gold, and the clothing you wear, but let your adorning, your beauty, be the hidden person of the heart. He's not saying this is a list of don'ts. He's saying this shouldn't be your point of focus. This shouldn't be the main emphasis. It should be the emphasis on your heart. But again, it's funny how whole denominations can start off a one twisted scripture. Um, how about a traditional understanding of deacons? This is where most Baptist churches have gone wrong in the past. They have a pastor and they have deacons. And the two fight forever. <laughs> and, and nowhere in the Bible does it say to have a board of deacons and that they are a power structure. In fact, it's the exact opposite. In Acts chapter 6, it says that they are supposed to serve the body so that the elders can lead the church. But what you see is deacons elevated to a point of leadership, which they were never intended to be. In most Baptist churches and other churches that are deacon-dominated, they will appoint these men saying, well, you know, so-and-so is a good businessman. I bet he'd make a good deacon. I've heard those exact words said over and over again. And nowhere in the Bible, in Titus chapter 2 or 1 Timothy chapter 2, does it say that the qualification of deacon is he's a good businessman. And yet they will use the world standards and take a bunch of worldly men and put them in charge of the body of Christ. And it's no wonder their churches will split and divide and fight and whatever because they've done something based on tradition. How many of you have been to a church that has church, they have trustees? You've heard of a church having trustees, right? Nowhere in the Bible do you see the office of trustee. Where does trustee come from? About 120 years ago, it was not legal in the state of Texas for churches to own property. You couldn't buy property in the name of First Baptist Church or whatever. So what you'd have to do is you have at least two men step up and say, I'll be a trustee. We'll buy the property in our name. And therefore, those two guys usually end up taking care of the property because if the church closed, they had to sell the property and they wanted to make sure it was well taken care of. So usually in a lot of churches, you saw trustees were the ones who took care of the building and the property. But that's nowhere in the Bible. Thank the Lord, the Texas law has changed, and now you can buy property in the name of a church. But so many churches say they have trustees. I'm like, and you got that in from which verse of Scripture? And you see with trustees, it will mess up a church. Another one is um, the church calendar. You see people who experience, who uh, celebrate Lent and Holy Week, and we don't eat fish on Good Friday, we don't eat red meat on Good Friday, and they do all these things. And I'm like, and where in the Bible do you see that? Nowhere. I'm not saying Lent is a bad thing necessarily. If you want to give up something for 40 days, that, great. You might want to consider giving up for 365 days if it's bad, you know. But people, you, I, you'll see people give up something for 40 days and, they, and it's a bad thing and they'll go right back to it after Lent. As if God only wants you to be holy for 40 days leading up to Easter. And there are people who are so into the church calendar and they know this church calendar better than they know the scripture. And what is that doing? That's exalting a tradition of man to be equal with the doctrine of God. Um, and it, this probably hits a little closer to home. We can make the, the way we worship or the style of worship more important than anything else. In other words, while well, I'm looking for a church, you know, has a really just like a rock star show up front and the fog and the laser lights. And then there's churches that have that. Nothing unbiblical about it. But if you're like, you have to have that. And you will take that over good expository preaching. You've, you've elevated it. And, then, and here's the thing that's, um, 
that, that can become difficult. Okay, I was a part of a, of a church I loved to, that I loved dearly, Berean Baptist Church on the North Freeway. And, and Berean had a very unique style of doing worship and a very unique style of doing teaching. And we were very spoiled. And then we were getting excellent theology and getting very well grounded in Scripture and all that stuff. And what would happen, though, is people would move away to another state and they would say, man, I just can't find a church like Berean. And they'd end up not even going to church. And I'm like, whoa, you've just taken the, the Berean way and elevated it to like an idol. And that's dangerous. And you know what's funny? Just in the last couple of months, I've heard this about revolution. Where people have moved away and they say, I just can't find a church like revolution. Guess what? You won't. And don't. Now, if you want to look for a church like Revolution where you get good Bible teaching, hopefully it's good, and that you get, you get a loving body who love people genuinely, those are biblical things. Don't look for a church like Revolution necessarily. Look for a church that is like, the, like what the Bible spells out. Now, we at Revolution try to do it that way, but don't get stuck on, well, nobody teaches like Gary, or nobody leads music like they do, or it's just not the same. It doesn't have the same feel. If it's biblical, great. It'd be like... In a, in a sad example, if you lost a spouse, and say, let's say your husband passed away, and you want to go look for a carbon copy of him for your next husband, <laughs> that, that, I don't think that's what your deceased husband wants anyway. No one else will be that, that way, okay? And you need to embrace that, that, that as long as you're looking for a godly man who loves Jesus and loves you and is honest and dependable, he will not be like your first husband, nor should he be. And when you go to find another church, again, I want all of y'all to stay here as long as possible, but statistically speaking, some of you are going to move and different things are going to happen. When you go to find another church, make a list of what the Bible says of what a godly church should be. If it happens to be a little bit like revolution, great. If not, who cares? Don't, don't worship revolution and the way we do church. Let's, in fact, the way that revolution is, is going to continue to change and continue to evolve and be, and be different, okay? It'll still be based on the Bible, but we, not everything will be the same. That's when churches get stuck in a rut. Well, that's not the way we used to do it. Don't know why, why pastors want to change things, and this is different. Oh, we got a new pastor. I don't like the way he does things. That's worshiping tradition. We don't worship tradition. We worship Jesus. Now, so we can go off the road on one of two ditches, okay? And here's an example where I don't know exactly what happened here. I think one tried to miss the other and they both went off in a ditch. And what we can do is we can go to one extreme or the other. We can run too far where we have nothing stays the same or we can go to the other extreme where everything stays the same. And the constant, constant challenge of the Christian life is balance. Trying to keep the car on the road. Don't go off on one ditch or another. Let's talk about some examples where you can kind of go. Modesty. Okay? Some churches are like, women don't wear pants. And, you know, girls, you have to have your shirt up around your neck. And don't show. I know, I had a friend in college who didn't wear short sleeve shirts because he didn't. He thought if he showed off his muscles on his arms, that would be a temptation to girls, you know? I mean, just people go to extremes. And they, and they. And so, and then other people are like, no, I'm free to wear whatever I want, you know? And if he has a problem with lust, that's his problem. And they just wear, they dress like a woman on the street and say, hey, you know, that's just your problem. The Bible, the principle in the middle is modesty. Don't go to one extreme or the other. 
I don't want to be the pastor that tells you what you can and can't wear. That's not for me. That's for the, you and the Holy Spirit to decide what is modesty. And modesty, by the way, is not just a women issue, okay? We all need, what does modesty mean? It's where it doesn't draw unnecessary attention to you and to your body, okay? We, yeah, you want to dress nice, you want to look nice, and you know, if you're blessed with beauty or if you're handsome, great, praise God for it. But don't flaunt in a way where people are having a hard time with it. And don't be in a church that's going to tell you how to be modest and, and now, if you've got a big issue, then maybe one of your loving friends will confront you about it. But if they're preaching on the whole issue, it's a problem. Wealth. People are like, oh, I'm going to be poor for Jesus, and God hates all rich people. Pfft, no. And then the other extreme is, you know, God, name it and claim it. I'm going to claim that Mercedes in Jesus' name, and I'm going to have my Jesus First bumper sticker on the back as I'm driving that to the glory of God, and I got my Rolex, and look how much God has blessed me. And it's like, can we please just stand in the middle? Can we please not to go to one extreme or the other, but just realize God has given us all things richly to enjoy, but at the same time, we need to be generously giving things away and not hoarding, okay? There's a balance on all these issues. Another one, your attitude toward homosexuality, okay? Um, Christianity, to some degree, has deserved, to some degree, not totally, uh, a bad rap for how homosexuality has been, homosexuals have been treated to where, you know, some of us have been in churches, oh my gosh, that's disgusting, that's evil, and we just, we see these people like, oh, what are they doing here? And other people are like, oh, that's okay, you can do whatever you want. God loves you just the way you are, you don't have to change, and they embrace the whole LGBTQ. The balance is, I don't like what you do, but I still love you, and I don't hate you, and you're welcome here. I have sin in my life, you have sin in yours, but let's call it what it is, it's sin. We're not going to... We're not going to embrace adultery. We're not embracing any other sins. We still call it sin, but we love the sinner. Amen? And so we've got to be that way. And so you cannot throw Christianity away because some Christians have been mean to homosexuals. But you cannot just say, well, we have to embrace it all at the same time. Let's take another issue here. Just trying to make this practical. There we go. Entertainment. I remember uh, 50 years ago, you know, some denominations... You don't go to movies. That's Satan's house. Movies are evil. That's Hollywood. That's of the devil. The truth is, probably 90% of it is. <laughs> but it doesn't mean you don't go to movies. It's a good Christian film. There's a lot. What's cool is to see certain people stepping up and producing Christian films. And some are even in the theaters and all that stuff. Movies like Woodlawn and, and uh, God's Not Dead and other really good films. Go there. See it. Just support. Vote with your dollar. Support the good films. Don't see the bad films, but don't throw it all away. You know, some people are like, I'm not going to watch anything, you know, and they just throw it all away. And some people are like, oh, I'm going to watch everything. I'm going to Netflix and Jill and the whole works and just watch whatever. And who cares if there's nudity? Man, have some common sense. As you're watching anything, say, does this glorify God? When you're watching someone just stabbing someone repeatedly at Halloween, you know, because you like horror films, and you think that glorifies God. Okay? But you can't just say, oh, none of it's good. We're not going to watch anything. You've got to use some common sense, and you've got to pray through it, and, and every man decide for himself. Accountability. Some churches, if someone is doing something wrong, treating their spouse wrong, not treating their kids right, people are like, none of my business. Not going to say anything to them because that's not my business. Um, I think we're called the body of Christ, the family of God. But then other people go to another extreme. In fact, I know some people who used to go to church with me. They're now in a cult 
to where they're like, you have to ask your elders if you can date this girl, if you can take this job, and they talk to you about everything. They actually want to see your W-2 to make sure you're giving exactly 10% and nothing less, and they're just like hyper accountable. And in churches, other churches like, don't ask me anything. This is my business. I am going to live my life on my own. And they're both wrong. They're both incredibly long, wrong. We are accountable one to another, but there is a healthy way of doing it, and there's an unhealthy way of doing it. Last one here, missing Sunday worship. Yes, sometimes you've got to miss a Sunday. And we're not going to say, oh, you're an evil sinner, and then when you got COVID, see, aha, God's punishing you because you missed church. That's stupid. We don't believe that. But at the same time, there's people who say they're Christians, and they never go. They read their Bible, they post, and I know people exactly like this, they post Christian stuff on Facebook, but they're just like at home. Let me just tell you something. If you're watching from home today, we are thrilled that you're watching. That's better than watching something else. But if you can't, if you're like, let's say you're in North Dakota, or if you're in New York City, or you're in California, and you're watching this, if you're watching this, instead of going to be with the body of Christ somewhere near you, I would encourage you to turn this off. I really would. I'm, I, care, I don't care if we go down to th three watchers, okay? I would rather you choose a, ch a healthy Bible-believing church near you than to watch this instead. This is not meant to be a replacement. This is for people who are being cautious about COVID or have COVID or there's other extenuating reasons that they can't get out for health reasons, and so they're watching this instead. Or maybe you're homesick, you know? It could be, I remember it was... A few years ago, Tammy and the kids got sick, so they watched our live stream when we were live streaming before COVID. So I think I'm telling that right. Anyway, so this is not a replacement for the gathering, okay? The word church means gathering. The word is ecclesia. It means a gathering or an assembly, and that's what we are intended to do. But again, we can be legalistic like, you know, you can never, ever, ever miss. There's exceptions for it, and, and they need to be few, but they, and they need to be the exceptions. And what's funny is, I'm very encouraged by this verse right here because my spiritual gift is sarcasm and evidently it's Jesus' too. He says to these guys who are scholars and PhDs in the Bible, have you never read the Bible? <laughs> he said, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry and those who were with him? And here's what happened. So David is on the run from King Saul who's trying to kill him and he has some loyal followers and soldiers with him and they are hungry. They haven't eaten in a while. I don't know how long. And it says, and what he did is David entered into the house of God, the temple, and, and uh, he said, and this is in the time of Abiathar. We'll talk about that more in a second. And he was the high priest, and, and at the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence. Okay? Now, in the taber tabernacle, they, um, they had several things going on, but one of them was they baked 12 loaves of bread. Why did they bake 12? One for each of the 12 tribes. And they made two stacks of six, fresh baked, amazing bread of the highest quality. It was sifted over and over again. Um, it was approximately five pints of flour used to make each cake of bread. And they would leave those 12 loaves there, not to feed God, because God, it was symbolically saying, we give the best that we have to you, God. We tithe off of our harvest, and we give this to you, and it stayed there for a day. And then after, it was a day, and the whole idea of day-old bakery comes from the Bible. Just kidding. Um, then the priests could eat it. The priests could help themselves to it, but that's the only, that was, that was, it was intended for God. The priests couldn't touch it for 24 hours, and then the next day, the priests could eat it. 
But David shows up and he knows he's on the run from the king. And, and the, the priest who was on duty at the time was sympathetic to David. And David says, hey, we're starving. Is there anything here to eat? And he's like, I don't have anything but the bread of the presence. Presence means that you come into the, it literally means the bread of the face. Like the face of God. Like God would look upon this stuff and be pleased that God's presence was felt there. Um, and so he gave it to them and they ate. And nowhere in the Bible say David and his men were wrong for doing that. Because they didn't want to get caught up on the ritual rules. And also the 24 hours had passed where for, it was for God. It was not for the priest. So if the priest shared it with David, it's no big deal. And here's what it might have looked like. So here is the, uh, the, the table inside the tabernacle there. And um, here's what's interesting, is when they would make this big, and usually, actually, these are round, but something I read said they were more like, likely oblong, like a big loaf of Italian bread. And what was interesting is they would take, the Bible says in Leviticus to take oil and make a line horizontally and a line vertically. What does that make? A cross. And that everyone, and this is the best picture I could find, but everyone, and then what would that oil do when it baked? It would sizzle on top and it would, it would rise up, it would be a cross on each loaf of bread. So even when these priests are doing this, they have no idea that this is a picture of Jesus Christ dying on the cross in the, in the future to come. But isn't that the way the Old Testament works? Everything is about Jesus. It all points to Jesus. Here's the passage that Jesus was referring to. And he says, you never read 1 Samuel? He says, then David came back to Nob, uh, Ahimelech the priest. Now notice it says Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why, why are you alone and no one with you? Because David's told the soldiers, hey, you stay here. I don't want to risk your life. I'll go get us some food, which is pretty amazing on David's part. But David is being the king who risks his life for his followers. See the picture of Jesus there too? And it says, and and. And David said to Elimelech, the priest, what do you have on hand? He said, give me loaves of bread or whatever else is here. And the priest answered David, he said, I have no common bread. In other words, for ordinary people on hand, but there is holy bread. But he says, if the young men have kept themselves from women, this was like a, a spiritual thing that before a priest could go into to, to deliver worship and do things like that, he had to abstain from sexuality for just days prior to that just to focus on God and he says I tell you what if your men have met the same requirements that I need to meet then they can have the bread that's very reasonable and that's what it's exactly what he did now did you notice what it would appear to be a contradiction in the New Testament says in the time of Abim uh, Abiathar but here it says Ahimelech and there's some people that are like, whoa, wait a minute, there's a contradiction in the Bible. First of all, every time you come across any of these, which there's only a handful, every single one of them has a very reasonable explanation. Here's a guy named uh, Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman was a Christian. He was teaching at the University of North Carolina. He came across this very contradiction, and it totally threw him off the rails to where all he started doing after that was looking for contradictions in the Bible. And he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, you know, how the whole Bible has been rewritten and changed, which is totally not true. And, uh, but here's, so some people say, well, Gary, is this a contradiction? And the answer is clearly no. And like I said, any fifth grader can figure this out. Just watch, watch what it says here with me. In 1 Samuel 22, it says, but one of the sons of Ahimelech, 
the son of Ahiatub, named Abiathar. Ahimelech's name was also Abiathar. Okay? So Jessica, um, Liam's middle name is what? Evan. I, I, what, say it again? Everett. Everett. But she always calls him Everett all the time, and then sometimes she'll call him Liam. So does she have, does, is it contradiction there? Sometimes she calls him by his middle name, especially if he's in trouble, and sometimes she calls him by his first name. That, that's nothing new. People, Peter, what was his name also? Simon, right? You see this all throughout the Bible. You see this uh, today where people go by different names. Sometimes they're called by the first name. Sometimes they're called by the middle name. Jose David, right? Some people call you Jose. We all call you David. Are we, is this a contradiction? No. Ahimelech's name was also Abiathar. How, how does this guy go totally off the rails? On, the answer's right there in the same book. So 1 Samuel, the same guy who wrote chapter 7, wrote chapter 22 and answered the question for you. But if you, there's another good answer to this too, and, and they both work together. Uh, a theologian named Bede says, there is no description, discrepancy for both were there. See, not only because Ahimelech, his son was Abiathar, but his, his son was Abiathar Ahimelech. Like, had a, he, he carried his dad's name with him. And they were both in the temple at the same time. So to refer to one or the other being there is not a contradiction. When David came to ask for bread and received it, that is to say, Ahimelech, the high priest, and Abiathar, his son, they're both there. When David came to the throne, Abiathar himself also received the rank of high priest, and, and son became of much greater excellence than the father and therefore was worthy to be mentioned as high priest even during his father's lifetime. There's no contradiction there. If somebody said, I went to high school with President Obama, is that a contradiction? He wasn't the president while he was in high school, but because he's known as President Obama, if you refer to him at any point in his life, he's known as President Obama if he wasn't president for those eight years, I mean, when he was president. So in other words, we still call him President Obama, but he's not the president. Do you see? So to call him the priest, he was always known as the priest, even before he became the priest, because he was in the temple with his father. There's no contradiction here. So why do intelligent people see this set of facts, and one finds a contradiction in the Bible, and the other doesn't? So here's Bart Ehrman, who sees what he thinks is a contradiction, and he just goes totally anti-Christian. And then here's a, a scientist who is an atheist who sees the exact same thing and he decides to become a Christian. You see, the problem is it's all in what you want to see. You see, you can Google search till you find your answer and you can stop on any subject. You can have Trump, you can have Biden, and you can people see the same set of facts and come to two different conclusions. It's all in what they want to see. And I'm not saying I'm for or against either one. I'm just saying we see what we want to see. People see through the eyes of their ethnicity, the eyes of their background, the eyes of their level of education, when the truth is we need to see through the eyes of God. We need to see things from a biblical perspective. So think about this. If I am, not me, let me just, if someone is polyamorous, okay, they'll read the Bible and they say, oh, Solomon had many wives. He had hundreds of wives. See, boom, close the Bible. The Bible endorses polyamory. I'm for it. And they only read the Bible as far as they want to prove what they want, and then they stop. 
So it's all in what you want. Do you want to believe the Bible is true? Then you will keep searching, and little contradictions like this will be like, oh, there's the explanation right there. The guy had two names, and Jesus used one, and Samuel used the other. Case closed. But if you want to believe there's a contradiction, you won't dig. And I find that all these people who are deconstructing, it's almost always there's a lifestyle thing involved. They want to be promiscuous. They want to be polyamorous. They want to be bisexual. They want to be homosexual. And so they will find a verse in the Bible that supports them. There it is. That's all I need. I'm done. And they will not continue to dig. And you know what? I don't want to just pick on those people. We do it too. We say, you know, oh, don't, we really need to pray for so-and-so. I heard that her and her husband are having a hard time, blah, 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 blah. Oh, is it prayer request or is it gossip? And we will do the exact same thing. But be careful what you're wanting. What you should want is your will be done, not mine. And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You got this totally back, backwards. God gave you a gift. It's called the Sabbath. Rest and relax. Don't be so uptight. And then he says, so the son of man, which was an amazing title, which everybody who understood the Old Testament, especially the book of Daniel, knew that this was the son of man meant God in the flesh. He's even Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus, this rabbi, is saying to other rabbis and Pharisees, I'm the Lord of the holiday. <laughs> you guys don't determine what's right and wrong. I'm the one who made the holiday. I'm the Lord who gave it to you, which then they, they thought that was blasphemy. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 Daniel has, says, I saw the vis night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. You see, Jesus, how does he return? On the clouds of heaven, okay? And there became one like the Son of Man, and came to the Ancient of Days, which is talking about the Heavenly Father, and was presented before him. And to him, the Heavenly Father, a godly being, gives to the Son, the Son of Man, a heavenly being, a, a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. So all this time the Jews were like, Jehovah has an everlasting kingdom. Jehovah has an everlasting dominion. He's worthy of glory and honor and everything. And the Father says, no, it's Jesus because we're equal. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It, it's always everywhere throughout the scripture. And you'll have people who won't believe in the Trinity and they'll try to find one verse or two but all you have to do is read all of the scripture to see how very true it is. And again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. Now, we don't know why his hand was withered. Whether it was, um, what's that? Cerebral palsy, thank you. Cerebral palsy, or it could have been withered because of some type of le leprosy, but I doubt he had been in the synagogue if that was the case. But it was something where his hand was all withered up and it was unusable. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now, I don't know if the they, I think the they, to be consistent, is the Pharisees. Okay? Some people think the they is everybody in the synagogue. Because the context has kind of allowed that. Because he entered into the synagogue and he wanted to see if they, the people in the synagogue. I don't know. But I think it, because of the pattern of the Pharisees always looking for something to accuse them of, the they is probably the Pharisees. So they want, they're all, instead of, again, it's all in what they want. Think about if being a Pharisee. I am very religious. I am very pious. I am very disciplined. I watch what I eat to a T. I watch how I dress to a T. I watch my behavior. And everybody in the community thinks I am amazing. And they pay respect to me. They bow when they see me. And now this other rabbi comes in, and all of my followers go follow him. 
And I'm like, hey, what happened here? What do I want? I want the attention back. So I'm going to seek a reason to find something wrong with Jesus. And you can too if you want. You might be watching here today online and thinking, I don't know about this Christianity. Let me check this out. If you're looking to find fault with Jesus, you probably will. Not that it'll be legitimate, just you'll look only as far as you want to see where it appears to be something's wrong, and then you'll have an excuse to walk away from Christianity. But the truth is, there's people who are always, when they, what they want is wrong, they will find something that isn't necessarily true. Verse 3 says that he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And I wonder if, there, if you're here this morning, and Jesus is saying to you, come here. Come, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he said to them, so let me ask you a question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? And let me put it another way. Is it good to save a life or to kill? You guys tell me. This is a common sense answer. And what was their response? Silence. It's funny how when I get in discussions with people and I ask them these hard questions, there's no answer. Because really, there really is no answer to why you shouldn't believe in Christ. All you can do is change the subject. Yeah, but what about this? Wait a minute. I just over here addressed your question and gave you a biblical answer. And your answer is, yeah, but what about this? Why not say, whoa, okay, the Bible is right. Maybe I should change the way I'm thinking. But what is their response? Their response is silence. When they're confronted with the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in their presence, showing them what truth really is, and they choose not to speak up, not to come to Christ like the man with the withered hand, but they choose to sit back and be silent. Don't be silent this morning if you're still searching for Christ. And, they, and then this is interesting. And he looked around at them. And this is where I kind of leave room for maybe it's everybody in the synagogue because I don't, think, I don't think the Pharisees were everywhere. They usually sit together. But it says he looked around at them. I kind of think now he is talking about everybody in the synagogue. And this is the side of Jesus we don't always feel comfortable with. He looked around with anger. Almost like, like what's wrong with you people, you know? And, and he was grieved. It wasn't this condemning attitude. It, was, it hurt him because of the hardness of their heart. Do you see, when you see evidence for Jesus, when you see evidence for Christianity, and you sit back silent, you're, you're not just being neutral. There is no neutral with Jesus. Jesus says you're either for me or you're against me. And when you try to remain silent, guess what happens to your heart? It becomes hard. And so the more you hear about Jesus, the harder and harder and harder it gets to where you're like, ah, pff, I don't care about Jesus. I can use his name in vain and not even blink an eye. And you become a hard-hearted person. And it says, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand, which is funny. You say to someone who's crippled, Stretch out, stretch out your crippled hand. But he did it. And that's when the miracle happened. He stretched out his hand and his hand was restored. And that's what Jesus came to do for all of us. We are all crippled, broken, withered people. And Jesus is here to have us stretch out our hand and receive him as Savior so that he can restore us. So I want to watch. This is, I will tell you, if, if you haven't watched The Chosen, I'm going to spoil it for you here. This is my favorite line one of the statements that Jesus makes in all of the Chosen series, okay? Shalom. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. May I, may I see. 
because they did not meet you with bread and with what? Excuse me, what are you doing? What is your name? Turn it up. Elam. Your friend Elam has a withered hand. Are you a healer? It is not lawful to heal on Sabbath. Which one of you who has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out? Who are you to speak to our congregation in such a of way? How much more value is this man than a sheep? Stop this at once. Come here. Come stand here. It's OK. Elam, sit down. We don't know this person. He could be a shaman. Is it lawful on Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? This affliction does not threaten his life. It does not even affect his health. Let it up. Interesting point. Get out! Gladly. Blasphemer! What is wrong with you? Apparently everything. Wait! Come back! How dare you? Are they going to send the town guards after us? I think those guys are the town guards. All right, so for those of you who didn't see, first he interrupted the reading simply by standing next to this guy with a paralyzed hand. <laughs> the, the priest. <laughs> what? Reaping or harvesting on Shabbat. Oh, yes. I'm sorry, I've been so hungry, I forgot what day it is. You may. of our little synagogue and of Torah. You will tell us your name, your lineage, your... First you and now your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Have you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He entered the house of God in the time of Ahimelech, the priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, but only for the priests. You would compare yourself to David. It was an emergency. Or have you not read in the law how on Shabbat the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath but are guiltless? That's for Levites. 
Are you a Levite of priestly lineage? Listen carefully. Something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man. Let's go. That title, Son of Man, seems to upset a lot of people. Why? Tell you later. <laughs> Did you catch my favorite line? What is wrong with you? Apparently everything. <laughs> I love it. It's so cool. If you're not watching the church, you need to get, download the free app and watch it. And it, we've watched every episode three times and still every time tears come to my eyes. It's amazing. And it portrays this. I will find one tiny flaw with the chosen here. Okay. And it's just a tiny thing. In Luke, who's a doctor who pays attention to detail, medical details, he says it was the man's right hand, and the chosen was his left. So if that's the only thing wrong with the chosen, great, go forward, okay? So the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. Now, Herodians are named after King Herod. Was King Herod a good guy? No, not at all. But these were Jews who said, you know what? If you can't beat them, join them. Let's just follow Herod. Let's do what he said. It'll be politically good for us, and we'll practice our Judaism, but we'll make compromises with him. So they were very loyal to Herod because they thought it was what's best, and they were pragmatists. They were just going to change things for the sake of political expediency. The Pharisees were like, no, we're not changing a thing for Herod, and we're going to fight him tooth and nail. And all of a sudden, these two groups who were totally opposite, guess what they did? They became best friends to fight against Jesus. And when it says here how to destroy him, it means just that. Not just kill him, but kill him brutally, destroy him, and kill him in that way. Um, Herodians held political power, and most scholars believe that they were a political party that supported King Herod Antipas, and they favored submitting to the Herods, because there was multiple Herods, father, son, son, and therefore to Rome for political expediency. This support of Herod compromised Jewish independence in the minds of Pharisees, making it difficult for the Herodians and the Pharisees to unite and agree on anything. But one thing they did unite on, and that was opposing Jesus. So Jesus, because it's not his time to die, he just says, you know what, guys, let's go out of town. And he withdrew with disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him. Watch the all different places. From Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, Tyre, and Sidon. Now, whenever you see a list of names and towns, just think, oh, well, that's boring. Keep going. Maybe pull out your maps in the back of your Bible and see what it looks like. This is basically the Bi Mark's way of saying from, from uh, New York to L.A. to from Chicago to Houston. From every part of the country, people came to the Sea of Galilee. And you can tell that those aren't short distances to travel. People, Jesus' popularity is increasing all over the whole country. And how is this happening? They posted it on Facebook. Oh, uh, no. They handed out flyers. They did a direct mail. It was all over television. How did they do it? It was word of mouth. 
Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't use those other tools, but what I'm saying is still to this day, the most effective way of spreading the good news about Jesus is you opening your mouth and telling someone. Don't let a week go by where you don't say, tell someone how good Jesus has been to you and how good God is. And when someone says something to you positive, tell them, say, well, I'm just thankful to Jesus. He blessed me this way. Don't do it in a pious way. Just find a creative and prayerful way to share the love of Christ with someone else so that the word about Jesus spreads. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Have you ever been in a crowd so big that, that people are pressing against you and it gets uncomfortable? One time I was at a sporting event and the, 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 the crowd was pressing in and they were late in opening the gates. And someone, security guard, came out to, look like he was going to open the gates but he didn't. He just walked on by. But all the people in the back thought that's what was happening. I started pressing in. And I was literally like this. I felt like I was being lifted off my feet. It was so pressing. I was, remember when I was like an eighth grader going to a University of Delaware football game. And it was just so crowded there like that. And Jesus felt that crush upon him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And you know what? I believe this is a, a foreshadow Jesus knew that if he, they crushed him there, all that would happen is they would be healed. But he wanted to be crushed later so they wouldn't be healed of just diseases, but they'd be healed of their souls. Isaiah 53, some people call this the first gospel. It says, he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was what? Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed, not just of diseases, but he was crushed for all of our sin and our guilt and our shame and took the punishment that we deserve. You see, it, it goes on to say, whenever the unclean spirits, that's another word for demonic, they, uh, they saw him, they fell down before him, they cried, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them that they not make it known. Isn't it interesting that demon spirits know exactly who Jesus are, but professors at colleges can't see it because they don't want to. It's interesting that in James 2.19, James says, you believe there's one God? Great. God is one. You're doing great. But even the devils believe and they even shudder. Demons in the presence of Jesus, they know who exactly who is. They know he's God in human flesh and they shake in torment knowing that he might cast them into the bottomless pit. And yet you may be here to say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. Well, great, You're, you've caught up with the demons. Doesn't make you saved. The demons don't trust in Jesus Christ to save them and give their life to him. My question for you this morning is, not have, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in God? My question is, have you received his gift of salvation that he accomplished on that cross and you gave your life to him, that you're going to follow Jesus? Have you made that decision? Have you crossed that line of faith? That's what the demons haven't done. And if you just leave yourself in just believing in Jesus and believing that there's one God, then you're going to end up in the same place that the demons will end up. But if you cross that line and say, yes, Jesus, I give my life to you. I trust you to, become, to forgive me of all my sins. Then you will be saved. You'll be what the Bible calls born again. You might be here this morning and say, you know what, though? but I don't need God. I really don't need God. I'm fine. I like my life the way it is. I got a good job. I'm happy. I get to do what I want on the weekends. I don't need God. 
Here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you to pray. It'd be kind of like if a, a wife keeps telling her husband, please, honey, go get checked out. Just please go get checked out. I don't need a doctor. I don't need a doctor. And then he goes to the doctor and he's like, doctor, I'm here because my wife made me come here. I feel fine. And the doctor says to him, we've found a spot on your lung. Oh, and, but it's a good thing you came now because we can catch it. We can, we can cure this now because we caught it in stage one. It's a good thing you didn't wait because six months from now you could have been stage four. There are times in your life you think, I don't need God. I don't need a doctor. But there's something eating you on the inside and it's called sin. You may be here today and you say, oh, oh I know I need God. Okay, well, but, oh, I'm sorry, on the back one. So if you're here today and think you don't need God, I just want you to pray a prayer. God, if I need you, make it obvious to me. Because right now I'm comfortable and I'm fine. I, I, want my, I like my life the way it is. But ask him. Just have a conversation with him, even if you don't even think he exists. But you may be here today and say, yeah, I do need God, but I, I'm just not ready. You know, that's like saying, I need to see the dentist, but I, I don't want to go. Does the tooth get worse while you're waiting or get better? It gets worse, right? And the longer you put it off, the worse your condition would be. So no matter where you're at with Jesus, whether you think you need him or you don't, have a conversation with him about your need. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, you've heard the word of God this morning, and you believe in him who sent, sent me, the Father sent the Son. If you believe in him, you trust in him, you rely upon him, you give your life to him, you will have what? Eternal life. And you won't come into judgment, but you cross that line from death over to life. I want to ask you this morning, everyone in the house, and even those watching online, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes and pray? If you know for sure you're saved, if you know for sure you've been born again and your life shows it, then I want you to pray for those who haven't. But if you're here today and you're not sure about all this Jesus stuff, you're not sure whether the Bible is true or whether you're a Christian or not, you can cross that line of faith today, right here, right now. You need to put your faith in Jesus. He died for you. Think for just a moment of the worst things you've ever done. We all have our list. I'm not a perfect person. I've done things I don't even want to talk about this morning, and so have you. But think about it. You did, because of what you've done, you deserve to be separated from God for all of eternity. But Jesus came and he died for every selfish, evil thing you have ever done. Those nails in his hands should have been in yours, but he took your place. He traded places with you. If you will trust him and say, yes, I received that gift of salvation. You gave your life for me. I now give my life to you. Be the Lord of my life. Help me make the decisions for everything I do. I give my life to you. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. So you could reach out to the Lord in a prayer, something like this. The prayer will not save you. It's not hocus pocus. It's not a magic spell. It's in your heart making this decision. Pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but I am so thankful that you took my place on the cross. I receive your forgiveness now for all you've done for me, and I give my life to you. Thank you for forgiving me. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you made that decision, the Bible says you've crossed that line from life over to death. And I'd love to have a conversation with you about how to begin your new life as a Christian. In just a moment, we're going to do question and answer. 
So let me encourage you to text your questions in here in just a second. Um, and if you want to stay, Amanda, if you'll come help me with the question and answer, that'd be great. And afterwards, if you want to stick around for lunch and life group, we'd love to have you. All right, so go ahead and text your questions in, and we'll do some question and answer right now. Um, there you go. And if you're watching online, feel free to text them into that number right there. In Matthew 7, and 23, Jesus talks about many who will call on him and remind him that they did mighty works in his name, but Jesus will say he never knew them. How could these people do these supernatural works in his name without Jesus's authority? Yeah, that's an awesome question. And I, I can give you somewhat of an answer, but I don't know the exact answer myself. Okay. So there's several possibilities and they all could be true. For example, we do see, and we know even in our 24th century, a lot of fake stuff going on, on television. Okay. Benny Hinn does it all the time, you know, and we, Bethel church was caught in a whole scam on videotape, faking healings. Okay. Oh. So there's all kinds of stuff going on. Um, who was that uh, guy? Uh, Peter Popoff. I don't remember him. YouTube that his name, can't forget that name, Peter Popoff. He would have an inner ear mic before they were even cool. And his wife would be telling him stuff on a shortwave thing, communicating with them. And they, somehow someone picked up on shortwave, and that's how he was exposed. But they would have people come through, and they'd have a guy dressed as a policeman who wasn't a policeman. And he'd say, I, I need to see your driver's license, stuff like that. And he was, I don't know how he was keeping the information. But then they, he would transfer the information to Peter Popoff's wife. And she would say, Dorothy Lynn lives on Hummingbird Lane. And he'd go, you're Dorothy Lynn. You live on Hummingbird Lane. She'd be like, yes, how did you know? And, and, he would just, and they, they, it was just a whole scam. And that guy was totally exposed. So number one, there's fake miracles. Number two, the Bible says in the last days there will be lying signs and wonders. Signs and wonders that lie. Mm -hmm. So there'll be things that happen that we can't explain, but, but they're, not, they're meant to deceive. So the devil is an imitator. He can fabricate things. I don't know exactly how or why. Some people believe that because they did it in the name of Jesus, the power of the name of Jesus performed a miracle, even though they didn't believe in Jesus himself. Remember there was those guys, the, the brothers that were following, trying to do miracles in the name of Jesus, but they weren't even believers. And the demon came and beat them all up. Okay, so some people believe that if you just simply do something in the name of Jesus, even if you're not a believer, just the power in the name could accomplish it. That's the one I'm like not too sure about. The first two are very likely. Okay. okay. Um, does the no instruments in church come from the belief that Satan's body was encrusted with musical instruments? And that's why they um, can't have music in church? I, I've heard the encrusted part there, I don't, and I don't know enough about it. I do believe that Satan's job before uh, he fell, he was one of three archangels. Some people believe there's five, but I think that's more Catholicism and extra biblical resources. But Michael, Gabriel, Lucifer were the three archangels. As best we can tell, Michael was the warrior angel because every time you see a fight in the Bible, it's Michael versus the devil, so he's the warrior angel. Gabriel was the messenger angel, so Gabriel delivered the message to Mary and to Joseph and then many other times in the Bible when you see the angel of the Lord and it's an angel, it's probably Gabriel, at least we think so. And Lucifer, it said that he led the sons of God or the angels in the choruses of praising and to singing holy, holy, holy. So when he fell, he fell with his musical ability 
And I think he still uses it today. I think most music out there, what does it sing about? One night stands and eat all kinds of evil stuff and highway to hell and dirty deeds done dirt cheap and whatever, all that stuff. I used to listen to ACDC and stuff like that, all that stuff. I mean, it's just flat out basically saying, here it is, it's, it's evil, you know? And, and uh, whether it's uh, ghetto rap that's just like about, you know, sleeping and talking with girls like they're bees and hoes, or it's country music, meeting at a bar and you don't even know your name and you're in your, back in your trailer park or whatever it is. It was all the music's all about, that's evil stuff. You know, the majority of it is. I'm not saying all, and I'm not saying you only have to listen to Christian music. I'm saying you need to be super selective because Satan is still musical and he's using his weapon against us. So now the question is, does that translate to why you don't have instruments in church? No, that's just dumb. So just because Satan uses music, what do we use to glorify God? Music, okay? And so if that was the case, Satan fell long before David played a harp, Okay. Satan fell a long time before God commanded them to pick up instruments and play. So if it's satanic in the New Testament, it should have been satanic in the Old Testament, and it wasn't. The only basis they have is it wasn't repeated in the New Testament. I'm like, so what? So, Help me understand the balance with this. I heard a sermon recently about Daniel, how Daniel was trained in the dark arts of sorcery and enchanting and soon became a leader in Babylon. In this sermon, Daniel was used as an example of how we, as Christians, are not supposed to separate ourselves completely from knowing about worldly things, but are supposed to know a great deal about worldly things so we can act accordingly as a Christian. When choosing books, for example, that have cussing or GD in them, how do we, as a Christian, keep on reading, or as a Christian, do we keep on reading or cast the book aside? Thanks for your help with this. Man, that, that's a really well thought out question. Thank you. Um, so Daniel was taken into captivity. He was forced to go in and do the job he did. So keep that in mind. And many of you are forced into jobs where you don't like everything about it. But what, there came a line to where he said, okay, I'll do this, this, and this, but I'm not doing this. I'm not praying to your God. Throw me in the lines that if you have to. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had the same situation, they're like, we're not bowing down the statue. We've done all this and this. You want us to learn about your magic? We've learned. We know it. We know it better than you guys do. We're not saying we believe it, but we, the requirement was to learn it. Now, so therefore, if you're required to read something in high school that you don't like, do your requirement. In fact, learn it better than anybody else in the classroom, okay? Now, it, there may be a point where it draws a line where you have to say, just because you read something doesn't mean you agree with it. And your teacher may have to, you may have to write a paper and answer a test on a term report. You know, you could say, this is the answer you're looking for, but here's what I believe. And they can't grade you down for that, okay? So do all you can up to a certain point. But they say, but you have to agree with this. You have to embrace this, you know? You can say, no, I'm not. Give me an F, I don't care. So, and whether it's a student or whether it's your job, there's a certain point, and where that balance is, I don't exactly know. Daniel and his three Hebrew friends knew where that line was. You need to pray that God gives you wisdom and discernment, you know, to where you're going to do things you don't like, but that doesn't mean you agree, but you do them anyway, and you do them better than everybody else to show that you're a believer. But there comes a line where you have to say, you know what, I'm going to have to give my two weeks resignation because I, I can't go with this anymore. And again, you know that line. I'm not going to play the Holy Spirit for you. The Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you. Make sure you're not. There's certain things, for example, that. Uh, so you saw Rahab the harlot. She, uh, when the life was on the line, 
then she made her decision on that. You see, Peter in the New Testament said, go ahead and kill us. We ought to obey God rather than man. So there is a line, and it comes to when it's life and death situations, then cross that line and don't do it. And when it says, when they tell you don't preach the gospel, cross that line and just do it anyway. Okay, so, all right, I, that's the best answer I can give for right now. Great question, though. Dr. Francis Collins used, used to and still may espouse theists I hope I said it's right, theistic evolutionist. His book, The Language of God, is all about this. Can you explain what theistic evolutionist is? Yeah, theistic evolution is the idea that, that evolution is true, but God was totally in control of evolution. And that is a very desirable theory because it makes everybody happy. But don't believe it for that reason. Believe it, if you believe it, believe it because you think that's scientifically and biblically true. Notice what I said, scientifically and biblically true. If it ceases to be either, there's no contradiction between science and the Bible. You need to find an answer that is, between, that is science and the Bible. I am, I am not a theistic evolution. I believe God literally created the earth in six days. And I believe that science supports that. Okay, I'll give you, you, you look at the electromagnetic field of the universe. We know at what, late, what rate it is depreciating. If you take that same depreciation rate and extrapolate it backwards, beyond 7,000 years, life could not have existed with the intensity of the magnetic field. And the Bible says the Earth is about 7,000 years old. Another example, when they sent the Apollo 13 space module to the moon, remember uh, it had big round like snow boots on each leg because they thought they were going to land in about this much dust. Okay, because we know the rate at which lunar dust falls to the earth and to the moon. If we could go somewhere on earth where that dust has not been touched, we could divide the amount of dust by the number of years and know how old the earth is. But because we have oceans absorbing the dust and the atmosphere and soil, there's nowhere on earth like that. But the moon has no atmosphere and so the dust just keeps piling up. So when they got up there, they're expecting billions of years of dust and all they found was about one and three quarters of an inch, which is the equivalent of 7,000 years. So science supports the Bible, not the other way around. Um, I, I'm gonna give you one more example. If evolution is true and we came from monkeys, you do not find any transitional species between monkey and human or any other thing. They're finding out now that dinosaurs did not have feathers, even though that's been the evolutionary belief. Now, and here's the other thing. They have, they're, on almost a monthly basis, they're finding dinosaurs, and in their bones, there's still marrow. Marrow does not last billions of years or millions of years. Marrow can last about 10,000 years. And they're, finding, and they're finding DNA and all these things in there. And they're like, how could these dinosaurs still have this stuff in their bones? It's because they didn't live millions of years ago. So I, I can go on and on and on. Um, I took creation science in college, just one semester, not, not my degree. But there's just a book full of this kind of information where science supports that. So I would, now, I'll, granted, Dr. Collins is much smarter than me. So I would like to know what he sees. My theory, totally my theory, okay, is that he's still in the scientific community and he's trying to make a decision that makes everybody happy, the scientists and the Christians. That's my theory. How will the mark of the beast start? This is Alex again. <laughs> Alex always asks, every study about Alex. How will it start? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I would just go to Revelation. It says no man can buy or sell without it. 
So I believe it will start as an economic tool. It will be the replacement for your credit card, your debit card. That's my theory. I don't know. That's all I know. It could, it could catch us off guard, start some other way, totally different. I actually, one thing is it could be the, the Dallas Cowboys logo. Everybody has to take the star. That just kidding. <laughs> Make sure you heard. He's just kidding. Um, can women be deacons? Can women be deacons? Uh, in the little DC, in the little D, yes, deaconess. There, there is the office of deaconess. I do not believe it's an ordained um, position like First Timothy and Titus describe because it talks about a deacon being the husband of one wife. And since we don't support gay marriage, obviously a woman cannot be the husband of one wife. So I do believe they can be deaconesses and that that's a very honorable position in a church. We haven't gone there yet, but uh, I, I don't think in the ordained sense of the word like Paul describes to Timothy that they can be. Is that it? All right, cool. Go to the next slide for me because I don't remember how we decided. And oh, it's a scripture, right? No, skip that one. There's a scripture there at the end. There we go. Let's stand and we're going to read this verse, a scripture together as a blessing over one another as we dismiss here. So 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Everybody join me together. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.